The future is a hefty responsibility and not one that we take lightly. But then taking things lightly has never been what hefty is about. That's why we've created the Hefty Renew program that turns hard to recycle plastics into valuable resources like park benches and building materials. To participate, simply fill up an orange Hefty Renew bag with accepted items, tie it up, and drop it in with your regular recycling. That's it. It's that easy. It's time to rethink recycling with Renew. Particular valued resources may vary by geography. More info available at heftyrenew.com. Hey, everybody. Jay here. Just wanted to let you know that this episode was recorded quite a bit ago prior to a major revision to Steve Tendon's book. So if you are looking for the book that is being discussed in this week's episode, please go to leanpub.com forward slash tameflow to find the book of tameflow by Steve Tendon. Enjoy the show. Yeah. Hello, everyone. I'm happy to be here on the Agile podcast. I was invited to talk about my team, your workflow and tameflow in general. I'm very, very glad to be here. Jay Hersto joins me once again. I have a good friend of mine, Ben Al Young. Ben, say hello, Ben. Hello. Nice to be yeah. here. Waving to the camera, Ben is not great. <laughs> and, I, and we have, uh, for the first time, another friend of mine, Scott Wagner. Scott, greetings. Greetings. And for this episode, we are going to be talking about um, probably the book that made me take more notes. Uh, we were talking about it before we started recording. This book has made me take more notes than Dan McCanty's Actionable Agile Metrics. Um, and it was really one of those mind-awakening um, experiences. Uh, we're going to talk about Tame Your Workflow. And joining us to talk about Tame Your Workflow uh, is the creator of Tame Flow himself, himself, Steve Tendon. Steve, thank you so much for joining us. Hey, uh, it's a great, great pleasure to, to be here. I'm really glad you invited me. I'm looking forward to, to have this conversation and, uh, and uh, uh, your questions. <laughs> we, got, we got plenty for you, Steve. So before we dive into the questions, uh, for, for listeners who may not be familiar with you or your work, can, we, can, we, can you give us a little bit of an intro of a bio about, um, about what you do? Um, and then you can start talking about the genesis of TameFlow. We can run from there. Wow. Well, that's that's a long story. I'll try to make it short. Uh, but uh, you know, in the previous millennium, I uh, I was a software engineer, so that's like the uh, the stone age of this field. Um, I started off in the um, like late '80s, early '90s, with the leg- legendary Borland company, the makers of Turbo Pascal, Turbo C, and and all those those products. And that experience shaped a lot of uh, what we uh, today see in, uh, in Tameflow. Um, the story there is that uh, AT&T was uh, interested in finding ways of developing software uh, in a, you know, quicker and better. And they tasked Jim Copeland to do a cross-industry study. And he came across Borland and found that Borland was off the charts in any way you tried to measure the company. Now, uh, this is interesting because the way he approached this was uh, quite unconventional. It was not like a process engineer, which you would expect from AT&T labs, but it was more from a point of view of, uh, how can you say, a sociologist, an anthropologist, a psychologist, and he used new ways to investigate what made a good company a good company. And um, um, there were two things that came out of this. One was a paper um, about the Borland Quattro Pro for Windows case. And I mentioned this because it was highly influential 
on um, Jeff Sutherland and uh, uh, his making of, uh, of Scrum. So I could say that Tameflow has some common heritage with uh, Scrum due to that, uh, to that study. But the other big thing that came out of Jim's work uh, was the notion of organizational design patterns. Uh, Jim is a, is a great uh, scholar of, of patterns and pattern theory, and he applied it to, um, to describing and designing organizations and, uh, and in particular organizations that engage in software development, software engineering. I picked that up. I was fascinated by those thoughts and made uh, the pattern thinking the centerpiece of Tameflow. Now, fast forward uh, like 25 years and more, and uh, I finally, in 2013, 14, decided to give a name to the way I was working, and it became Tame the Flow, or for short, Tameflow. Why? Because I tame four flows the operational flow that most people are familiar with, the um, financial flow, so how companies make money, the um, flow of information, so the feedback loops that we are so familiar with in, uh, in Agile, and uh, last but not least, the most difficult flow of all, which is psychological flow, the, the one that, um, that um, uh, American-Hungarian psychologist Mihaly Csikszentmihalyi, I don't know if I pronounced that one right, um, <laughs> studied and just said, no, flow is the basis for, for happiness and, and, and optimal experience. So I want to bring people and companies, teams, entire organizations to that optimal experience where they are happy at work, they are hyper performing, and uh, well, the business results just come out of that. So uh, yeah, that's what I think I'm here for, to make people happy. <laughs> and I, I got to tell you, so again, for our listeners, the book we're discussing is Tame Your Workflow. Obviously, we'll have a link to it in the show notes. Um, ben, we were talking before you joined. This was one of those um, fear of missing out events where you peer pressured Scott and I. Ben picked it up and said, sorry. this book is great. You guys got to read it. So I picked it up. So Scott picked it up and we blasted through it. And it, it goes without saying that almost everybody has read the goal, right? Ailey Goldenrat's work on theory of constraints. And it almost creates like a cognitive distance of, okay, that's manufacturing. How does theory of constraints work in a knowledge, knowledge delivery, uh, knowledge work situation? And Steve presents a way that, that he not only makes it work, it seems to the point where he explains it in a way that you stop and you go, well, duh, what, what, why am I doing other things and not, not doing this? Uh, but, but we're not going to drain the book, but I do want to kick off with Ben, uh, you had a couple of good questions. I'm going to start with you and then bounce back and forth to Scott. Um, let's go in with some of the questions we had for Steve after, you know, reading through Tame Your Workflow. All right, cool. Yeah, I've got some some harder questions that will hopefully be some good discussion, but I want to start off more generally with, so the, the um, subtitle of the book is How Dr. Goldratt of the Goal Would Apply the Theory of Constraints to Rethink Knowledge Work Management, which is actually quite unorthodox when you consider the way that most people think nowadays. Most people probably think, um, you know, theory of constraints does not necessarily apply to knowledge work. So what are they missing? How, how come uh, it does work for knowledge work? And why are we all sort of misled to thinking that it doesn't? And it's only good for things like manufacturing. Well, <clears throat> that's a, um, a great question. And, and uh, the answer to that question um, took the the best of the of the, like the last 
um, 10 or 12 years of my life to, <laughs> to, uh, to pinpoint. Um, and and the, the, the result is, uh, is there in the book. So why do we have this, uh, uh, this uh, uh, mismatch uh, of, uh, of perception, I would say? Well, because obviously uh, how uh, Dr. Goldrath presented his theory with uh, uh, the goal, um, it was in a manufacturing uh, situation. But we must not forget that the theory of constraints, now notwithstanding what I have been adding, and we'll get to that in a moment because that is the answer to your question, but we must not forget that the theory of constraints is a huge body of knowledge. Most people read the goal and say, oh yeah, it's about finding the bottleneck, not the constraint, the bottleneck. Um, shrug of shoulders, yeah, we can do that. We, we do it all the time, especially if you are in software, you know, you have to find the inner loop and and, and what keeps you back the most. Um, but it's not that simple because the theory of constraints has evolved a lot since those times. And it has been applied uh, not only to manufacturing, but also to project management, to distribution, to uh, sales, uh, to healthcare, to all sorts of, uh, of situations. And uh, the thing that allowed um, Goldratt and the other practitioners of the theory of constraints to extend its reach beyond the manufacturing floor is that part which uh, most people do not know about the theory of constraints, um, which goes under the name of uh, the thinking processes, where you apply logical thinking to whatever you're trying to resolve and uh, if you are aiming to reach a goal, by definition, there must be something, by logic, there must be something that keeps you, holds you back. So you want to apply the thinking, the logic, to find what holds you back. So it's from there that I started. Now, it, it just makes sense. Uh, the, uh, the counter argument there is if there were not a constraint, well, your productivity would be infinite. Nothing is holding you back but obviously something is holding you back. So we just need to be able to think and identify what it is that holds us back. Um, and the step like from the manufacturing floor to knowledge work is quite a tricky one. Why? Because we have precedents that uh, I would say have, uh, have failed. Um, David Anderson started off by writing a book on software and theory of constraints. It was the book that introduced me to theory of constraints. And I was fascinated by this theory. Do you know why? Because uh, remember what I said, my work is based on patterns. And uh, in uh, TameFlow, I have come to define like three foundational patterns. And one of these foundational patterns is unity of purpose. Why is this so significant? Well, because if you have a bottleneck, a constraint, a single focusing point, uh, you can get all people to gang up around that point. It's like the swarming idea we have often in, in, uh, in Scrum and, and Agile. Now, all are there looking at that single problem. Uh, David Anderson eventually introduced uh, Kanban, and if you've seen the latest uh, uh, podcasts uh, by Dan Bacanti, he even tells the, the story how that happened. Um, long story short, trying to apply the theory of constraints in a knowledge work setting with the manufacturing 
mindset is a recipe for failure. Uh, and in fact, out of that came Kanban, the Kanban method, not Kanban of Taichi Ono, and even, uh, you know, the history goes back even further, but it's it's not the Kanban of the uh, uh, Toyota uh, uh, production system or uh, Lean. It's uh, the Kanban method that we have in software, so the, the Kanban boards and so on and so forth. Um, there, the error that most people do is believing that you will find the constraint by looking at the pileups in uh, in the columns. That is not uh, is not the case. Um, that is very misleading. Um, <clears throat> but that that becomes even um, a self fulfilling prophecy that you cannot find the constraint because how do you try to to cope with the situation? Well, you introduce column width limits, but column width limits will uh, just make the situation worse because one moment it's one column that gives you uh, a signal the next moment it's the next column and you are really under the impression that the constraint the bottleneck is just jumping uh, around uh, uh, like like madness so there is no way to pinpoint and remember step one of the theory of constraint is find identify the constraint uh, and if this constraint keeps on moving, there's no point. You, know, you, 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 do, you don't get a fixed point where to focus. So was, when, Steve, uh, not to cut you off, that was the mind-blowing quote that I dropped in a meeting of a bunch of coaches where we were talking about this directly. And, and Ben and Scott were both on the call where I said, you know, one of the things I took out of this book was when you put column whip limits, you hide the constraint and you allow it to move. And you don't really see where it is. And you literally saw certain people just sit back in the chair and their head just like exploded. <laughs> because because to your point, whip limits have been beaten in our head for so long that the idea of taking it off to really see the system as it is was completely foreign. And these are people who are experienced and know what they're talking about. Yeah. Uh, Jay, by the way, please do interrupt me because, you know, when I get started on these <laughs> topics, I, I don't stop. I just go on and on. So, no. <laughs> Uh, hold me so back and so, so we get the chance to ask some questions. <laughs> <laughs> it's, it's, a, it's a it's true testament and I look at it as a compliment that we get people going and they feel comfortable and they can just keep going. To, but we will keep that in mind. Um, with that being said, Scott, what's your question? What was your well, first question? I, I actually am going to do the compliment sandwich. So my question is going to sound kind of negative, but it's not in the least. I love the book. I love the content, but I, I, I always go to the people part, right? So when we're establishing mental models, um, I'm just wondering if you found this harder to actually pull into reality than the book sometimes portrays. Um, and what I would say to that is, is I also, when we got to the end and we hit the pattern section, I just loved the section. So it kind of gave me some faith that this is true, but I wanted to hear it from you. Um, so uh, no, wonderful question. I don't think it's negative. I think it's, uh, 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 it invites deeper reflection. And uh, um, on the, uh, the starting point, Tameflow is based on four flows. Um, <clears throat> but the book is primarily on operational flow. Why? Because that's where people feel the most problems. That's what they can relate to. And uh, if you start doing a few things like mm, low-hanging fruits, like improving flow efficiency, um, you, you, you have better chances of, uh, of actually getting traction and, and people trying out things. But on the psychological side, 
um, what is one pattern that I always relate to is what I call the enlightened uh, self-interest pattern. Um, with TameFlow, I wholeheartedly invite people to be absolutely selfish, to think only about themselves. Now, this might sound uh, not quite politically correct because we should be caring and taking care of one another. But the point is, unless my uh, needs are met, my own personal needs are met, um, then uh, I and you now will have to reach a compromise. And a compromise always means that nobody is really happy. We are just making half wins. So the, uh, the, the premise here is we want everyone in the company to have their own personal individual needs met first. Uh, start with that in mind and uh, then uh, relate that to, um, to the mental models that you have discovered uh, reading the, uh, the book and start to compare that those mental models to, uh, to what might be your own personal needs. The classical one that I always mention is you now you value time. Um, your, your time is the most precious thing uh, you, you have on, in life, in this existence we have on planet Earth. And uh, you don't want to waste your time in, uh, in stressful uh, jobs where you might always be firefighting, where you are always doing overtime and um, you don't even have, have the time to read good books like Tame Your Flow, you know, so you're, you're, <laughs> you're, you're always under, under pressure. Now imagine that if you apply these mental models, you know, one thing that comes out is that in order to perform uh, only Herbie, the constraint has to, to work at maximum capacity. All others have to stand still. So they have time on their hand to do other things. I often say, you know, if you have nothing to do, don't, don't do anything. Go fishing, go have fun. But don't create more chaos than we already have. It's only Herbie that has to, uh, to work to the maximum. So, okay, maybe that's an extreme, but you see that applying that mental model, if you're not Herbie, you would say, ha I see. I could have time and I could use it for something else. That is my interest. So it's the aha moment that is the enlightening. You see the mental model, you see how it relates to your interest, and that's where you get the buy-in. And TeamFlow is structured on this mechanism at all levels, from the CEO to the junior hire. So the other thing is that these mental models, we want them to be oh, really a few, hand, a handful, and um, have them shared across the entire organization. So we don't have the problem that maybe um, Scrum has that you need to scale or that the agilists have that, oh, the agile mindset has to be adopted. And you know what, all those top managers, they just don't get it. Well, you know, you're starting from the wrong end. You must start from the self-interest, the, the what's in it for me of all the people in the organization and find ways to, uh, well, make them pull in the same direction. But you will not do that with any of the, uh, let's say, agile approaches. You will not do it with traditional project management. You will not do it even with um, 
with the management theories. The things that get closest are maybe things like holacracy, maybe things like uh, uh, team science, where uh, you study more how people actually work together. So sociology and anthropology will give you the replies. Uh, Tameflow brings all of this together with a handful of mental models where uh, you uh, on the ground might see, oh yeah, I get more time for me. I can study the good stuff. I can help Herbie. And, uh, and the CEO will say, wow, no, our, our business performance will improve dramatically. And many of the things you gain business-wise with Tameflow are not uh, in need of investment or restructuring or training. Uh, it's just making decisions differently. Why? Because you're enlightened by a new model. You see reality differently. I love the usage, your usage of the term enlightened, right? Because there's there's an old saying, I forgot who said it, that you know altruism doesn't work, but enlightened rational self-interest does. And there's there's definitely something at play there. We're getting people to change their minds to look about things differently. Um, man, Steve, there was a lot to unpack in that remark. I mean, you even touched on you know the idea of low-hanging fruit um, and how you know reducing wasted wait time. Right. It's not a thing of and I think you, the term you use in the book is it's not work faster as much as it's deliver sooner. And the way best smart, like you said, it doesn't require any you know, capital investment to take a step back, look at your process, figure out where your wait times are and then look to decrease those to make things. Yeah, not, not only is it is it uh, uh, very um, easy to do, but the, the main thing is that by chasing like wait times, and of course there are limits to how much you can do that, but you have lots to gain. Um, by definition, the touch time doesn't change. That means that your way of working does not change at all. So if things don't change, there is a small risk of failure. Why do all the agile transformation, business process improvement, initiatives here, initiatives there, why do they mostly fail? Well, one, because they uh, aim at uh, improving on the touch time. And uh, in doing so, they incur in a lot of risk. So it's very easy to fail. But even if they are successful, the problem is that the touch time they touch, pardon the <laughs> play on word, is mostly the touch time of the non-herbies. And we know that that from the theory of constraints does not add anything at all. So mm -hmm. that is my explanation why all of these initiatives uh, are, uh, are just so, so wasteful. And what happens then, people get burned out. There is uh, like change fatigue. They don't want to see another consultant and another method and oh no, <laughs> here we go again. You know? <laughs> right, right, right. Ben, you had something? Uh, yeah, I wanted to um, ask about uh, a sentiment that's brought up a few times in Reinertsen's flow book, um, because he, he makes quite a distinct point about sort of differentiating, um, yeah, I don't know if he uses the word knowledge work, but he always talks about stochastic processes and how theory of constraints he claims does not work for them, um, because the bottlenecks and constraints move. So he, he basically makes the case for local Kanban signals that kind of radiate upstream 
rather than subordinating the entire system um, to the constraint, because by time work flows to the constraint, it may have moved. Uh, but the way that you've constructed tame flow, um, I believe it addresses this, this particular concern. So could you explain that a little bit and, and the alternative point of view from saying that what Reinertsen is saying that theory of constraints does not apply to stochastic processes? Um, so first of all, no, I love uh, Reinertsen's work. It's, uh, it's absolutely fantastic. Um, though, uh, yes, he has a few misconceptions about the theory of constraints. And that's probably the only flaw of, uh, of, his, uh, of his work. Um, first, applying deterministic methods in a stochastic um, context is a recipe for, uh, for failure. And that's why uh, chasing the constraint on a Kanban board will uh, inevitably fail because you're looking at, at uh, um, uh, the, the pileups that then just keep on changing and changing. So in that sense, the observation is correct. But um, that's not the way you should identify uh, the constraint in a stochastic context. In a stochastic context, you should identify the constraint with stochastic methods. And in fact, what do I do? What is the main breakthrough in uh, looking for the constraint on a Kanban board? Well, I look at the flow time distribution well, across the board, um, many will talk about cycle time, lead time. I call it flow time because that was the original term that Dr. Little of Little's Law used. And not only do I look at the flow time distribution across the entire board, but uh, also the flow time distribution in state. So in the single column, what are the flow time distributions? And of course, being a distribution, you can find an average. And these averages, um, have uh, like long-term stability, especially if you start limiting work in process and you get to a, a stable state like Dan Vacanting teaches, you know, you want the, the, um, the uh, demand line to be parallel um, to, uh, to the delivery line. So you have the, uh, like your CFD, your cumulative flow diagram is, is nice and smooth and parallel. Well, in those conditions, the, uh, the average in-state flow times are very, very stable. So it's easy, easy, easy to find the constraint. Uh, you pick the column that has the longest average, average flow time. And around that column, you build all the thinking of, uh, of Dr. Goldratt. Now, mind you, mind you, in complex knowledge work where you have multiple teams and you have um, unknown work coming at you, that's not the only way to find the constraint. In fact, in TameFlow, you know, I call that the constraint in the work process. The Kanban board is a work process. But we also look at the constraint in the workflow, which is the uh, work coming towards you. Um, that can change from day to day. One day, it's nothing. Next day, it's, uh, <laughs> it's a huge pile. Uh, and then we must also account for Mr. Herbie, uh, sorry, no, Mr. Herbie, Mr. Murphy, mm, <laughs> visiting <Murphy>. Herbie. <laughs> uh, that was a good one. Um, so Mr. Murphy will visit your teams and uh, know your uh, top performing team from one day to the next uh, uh, might just uh, be, uh, be at a standstill. 
So we must have a dynamic view of finding where the constraint is at the moment. And that is the constraint in the work execution. Now in, in the book, I know I explain how to, uh, to do this. And if you want, we can go into more details. Scott, I believe you have a question regarding, I think it's, uh, C was yeah. just leading, he was leading the witness, so. <laughs> from, the, uh, from the point of, of cue signals, I'm just wondering your, your take and what you've seen in your experience around overhead in this area, because that, that tends to be the first place people go when we think fast, we don't think add, we think remove. Um, have you seen that overhead and what, what has your experience been? So do you mean overhead in terms of uh, resourcing of, of people, headcount, things like that? Yeah, because that, that, that to me adds that middle layer and we're, we're trying to really let, let the flow happen, whereas okay. this, this to me is uh, top level. So there are many, many uh, dimensions to, to, this, uh, to this question. First, within the team, um, the, uh, the moment you identify a, a constraint uh, could be no... Um, a group within the team, say developers, or if you have multiple teams, it could be a specific team. Uh, you are in the situation where if you apply the thinking of lean, uh, you might be uh, tempted to do the wrong thing because lean uh, in the pursuit of uh, um, taking away waste will say, okay, uh, Herbie can only work at, uh, at uh, you know, five kilometers per hour, uh, that's still quite fast. But if, uh, if the guy in front and the guy after can walk faster, there, there is uh, stuff in excess. Now, if they get the point that they must uh, not uh, walk faster than Herbie, they will want to eliminate all the capacity that is in excess. That is like a cost accounting exercise. You want to take away the stuff that you don't need. But that is a huge, huge error um, because um, the uh, point of keeping the whole system at the capacity of Herbie is guaranteed only if the non-constraints have protective capacity and even more excess capacity. So you should not be cutting heads uh, in the name of becoming lean. That is a major, major error and that protective and excess capacity you should use for other purposes, uh, which also could also be of strategic nature. The other point which maybe is uh, connected to this and which uh, relates more to, um, to the narratives that we have in Agile is now what do we do with all these mid-managers? They are absolutely useless. You know, they, uh, they just uh, warm their chairs and uh, give orders <laughs> and uh, uh, it, it's uh, you know it's that narrative, and unfortunately, it's it's the anti-management sentiment that uh, has developed in the in, in the agile space. Well, you all know the story of Herbie, how it goes, and I won't repeat it. But uh, instead of explaining the five focusing steps, uh, which was the original purpose of that story, I look at it from another perspective and said the. The essence of the story of Furby is that even if Furby is the, uh, the slowest guy, the uh, overweight and uh, has problems with his shoes, whatever, we leave no man behind. We don't leave anybody behind in the woods. So if uh, in an organization we see that some roles like mid-managers are becoming uh, less incisive 
Why? Because the organization is getting better and 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 faster and uh, and slimmer because we're doing all the things we're saying in the book. Well, we don't fire them. We find a way to value what they know and uh, maybe retrain or repurpose. I don't know what the right word is, but we know do not leave anyone behind. Uh, we will maybe take that as a, a golden opportunity that we have resources available that could do other things and stuff. Oh, like it. So, Steve, I guess to jump, and this will bring us full circle right back to where we're standing. So in the beginning, you talked about Wiffum, which to me is kind of like the opposite of Covey. He wants to go to the end. We're talking start in the beginning, right? Understand the people, you know, start there. So with, with DBR schedule, you have a piece in here that mentions in most companies, there's simply not sufficient stability to manage queues in this fashion. So I'm trying to understand that piece as well as reading end-to-end -end how much this works. So from a tooling perspective, how do those two kind of not conflict with each other? Um, I'm not quite sure I understood the question. Could you maybe rephrase it? Uh, well, it basically says it takes deliberate top-down decision to adopt DBR scheduling. It talks about metal models. And then it goes uh -huh. to that last piece about there is simply not sufficient stability to manage queues in this fashion in most companies. So yes. are we okay. saying that we really need to, to really get to DBR before we put it in place? Yeah, it, it is a chicken and egg problem. So the, uh, the fact is that um, uh, DBR is, is really counterintuitive. And, uh, and if you try to implement it like by uh, yourself in, in your little team, and maybe you're in a large corporation with, with, uh, with many teams, um, you will not gain a, a lot uh, out of it. Well, as a matter of fact, what often happens is that, um, that your team will, uh, will improve so much that it will stand out. It will stand out so much that the, the surrounding uh, context, the other teams, the other managers might start like deliberately sabotaging. Why? Because you make them look bad. And you know how it works in silos. You have KPIs and, uh, and all of a sudden there is an uh, imbalance there. So that's something to, um, to consider. The only way DBR can work is if it is um, put in relation to the enlightened self-interest of the top guy, the CEO and CFO, where they might uh, really get, uh, understand that by exercising these decisions of when to start and stop work in a different manner, the company will make more money, which you know, that is their, uh, their mission. Uh, you get to those positions because you have to make more money. Um, and at that point, at that point, you have like the, um, the preconditions for this to, uh, to happen. The, the top guys will want this to happen. And uh, you mentioned the patterns <clears throat> before at the end of the book. And one pattern to get started is, um, is quite different from uh, what you would do, like, let's say, in Scrum, where you start with a team and then you, uh, you scale upwards. Or in, uh, in Lean, where you do like a big bang, change everything at, uh, everywhere at the, at the same time, um, very much top down. Uh, what I suggest in Tameflow is that you focus on a slice 
uh, a bit like uh, in, in Agile, you want to, to uh, exercise the whole stack of, uh, of your application. Well, you start with a team, you go through all the managers from the team up to the top, and you get all of them involved. So it's like a vertical slice of the organization. That's where Tameflow starts. And when the top manager sees the impact of working that way, well, then it can fan out horizontally and uh, <clears throat> arrive at the, at the other uh, units and teams. But there is still one point, stability. Um, that is also one of the key points of gold, right? you know, there is this tension in the company between growth and, uh, and stability. Unless you have a stable situation, um, you will not be able to do the, the metrics to find the constraint. What I mentioned before, um, remember I said that we need the, the, uh, the CFDs to be nice and, and parallel. Uh, <clears throat> that is a sign of stability, um, which means limit working process. So there you have the circle, the chicken and egg. So you have to be good at that. So um, one of the things you touched on, Steve, which <clears throat> I think we could do an entire episode on <clears throat> is the idea of throughput accounting, right? Where do I put my, where do I invest my money? And this was another one of those, like, you know, Ben, Ben does the exploding brain emoji, right? This is another one of those things that made my brain reset is when you, there, there's a remark in the book of any money not invested in the constraint is basically money wasted, You're throwing money down a hole, right? And opt any money invested in, uh, op, not invested in optimizing the constraint, right? Um, which ties to the idea of throughput accounting where I'm sure every single person has been in an organization where they spend an outsized amount of time trying to figure out the budget for next year and the allocations and it's painful and, and brutal. And, you know, we try to do some voodoo chicken waving to figure out how much money we're going to spend. Um, so let me ask you this, Steve, in regards to, in regards to the, the practice of throughput accounting, looking at your throughput versus your operational expense versus your investment, why does it seem that this this is such a hard concept to grasp for a lot of for a lot of organizations? Because I'm I'm under the assumption that they teach this in MBA courses, but then it gets kind of lost by the wayside when people come out of their MBA school and they it's cost accounting one you know one one methodology to rule them all. Why do you think throughput accounting runs into that lack of adoption? Well, first of all, they do not teach this stuff in the MBA courses, hmm. so that's a huge uh, a huge gap. <clears throat> And it's, uh, it's pretty much a mental model gap. Uh, they don't teach it in accounting schools, not in MBAs, uh, almost uh, nowhere. So, uh, <clears throat> of course, it is uh, always perceived as, uh, as an esoteric uh, uh, voodoo practice, as you, as you mentioned. Um, the, uh, uh, the fact uh, is uh, that if a conventional cost accountant is to make a management decision with the tools uh, they are equipped with, they will almost always invariably arrive at the complete opposite decision of throughput accounting. And the fact is that if you try to go through the steps and, uh, and uh, like handhold them, they will often jump to the conclusion that uh, their choice is correct that there is no need to further elaborate the case, but they are missing that if they just walk another three, four, five steps down that dark path that we just hinted at, 
they would find the pot of gold. So it's uh, it is like a self-fulfilling prophecy. They don't uh, they they see the their obvious conclusion uh, before they have seen the whole story, and because they know the conclusion from their point of view, they uh, are not open to explore the rest. So that's where we need to be very um, how can we say. Um, delicate in a way in, in, in the way we present this, this topic, because it's very easy to immediately uh, provoke a, a rejection, a reaction, so no, this is not interesting. So that's uh, the only way to do that that I know of is to do some, some you know, whiteboard exercises and, uh, and uh, have the narrative of, uh, of uh, you know, this is is what we want. We know we want the unity of purpose, and uh, how do we get there? Well, we don't want to have conflicts, and you know what? Uh, the primary financial exercise in companies is budgeting. What is budgeting? It's warfare. It's everyone against everyone. Last man standing. You know who gets the largest uh, uh, slice of the pie, and then you have all those games. My uh, no, not only is my budget larger than yours. But if I don't spend all of my budget this year, I will get less next year, mm -hmm. right? And all, mm -hmm. all these uh, uh, bad behaviors that are induced by the process. So uh, by starting from there, we might say, well, you know, if we just look at the numbers differently, we might create a situation where instead of having these infights and instead of wasting our energy and, and uh, nervous uh, stress, uh, um, basically fighting one another, we can put that energy in winning into the markets. Now, these are the arguments that you start bringing in, and maybe then people start to listen. Now, it would be nice, but you know, it's impossible. Well, let's see. Let's look at the numbers. And then you start bringing in the numbers. And after a few exercises, you come to the throughput accounting element. And then you have, again, the enlightened self-interest. Yes, we do make more money. Let's do it. Why didn't we do it before? <laughs> That's, that is absolutely perfect. And um, <clears throat> I want to be conscious of time, Steve. We're, we're quickly approaching um, the cutoff. And I know that I, I speak for Ben and Scott, where we could literally go on for another six hours just picking apart every, <laughs> every single chapter. So I wanted to ask you, Steve, um, first qu two questions. First question is, where can readers find you and more information if they want to they want to dig into Taint Flow? Obviously, I'm going to do some links in the show notes. And secondly, I want to know, what's next? What's next for Steve Tendon and Taint Flow? <laughs> uh, so to find me, maybe the easiest way is on Twitter, where I am, at Tendon, T-E-N-D-O-N. Uh, they can check out the, uh, the Taint Flow uh, like corporate site, which is taintflow.com. There you'll find information about the books. You will find uh, uh, my uh, my blogs, which go back to 2011, 12. Uh, a lot of the blogs were like the raw material that then became the first book. Uh, you will find links to uh, you know I also have a YouTube channel, the Campfire Talks with uh, with uh, Herbie, where I often invite uh, practitioners of uh, all other schools of thought, and we we have uh, great conversations there. Um, you will find the uh, the training offerings and much much uh, more. Uh, you also find me on uh, on LinkedIn. I just uh, search for Steve Tandon. I'm the only one, I guess. At least <laughs> last time I checked, I was the only one. Um, and then what's next for uh, Tainflow? Well, 
of the website I just mentioned got to its current shape and form um, more or less one year ago when uh, I and Daniel published this uh, this book. Um, and for me, it was like, okay, done. Let's uh, let's go on with uh, with what I usually do because uh, you might know I'm also quite engaged in uh, in uh, in the blockchain space. I've I've been doing lots of stuff in in blockchains, but uh, Daniel. Uh, you know, came to me and said, "You know what? You really have to to bring this to market and uh, and uh, offer an alternative to all the the scrums and kanbans and safes and, and and all of those." And uh, I said, "Yeah, why not? Let's do that." So the next phase of Tameflow is uh, after having developed like the approach, the method of Tameflow. I I want to bring this to uh, to a broader audience. So let's say the business of uh, of Tameflow. And that's what I'm working on now. That's awesome. And by the so, way, by the way, the, the the trainer program that we have, you know, if uh, if you are an agile coach or trainer and uh, and want to take the next step, well, come to Tameflow. We're uh, we're going to amaze you. It's going to be awesome. <laughs> I, I think you may see a, a an email from a Ben, a Jay, and a Scott later expressing interest in that exact thing. <clears throat> well, wow, great, <laughs> um, <laughs> Steve. On behalf of um, Ben Scott and all of our listeners, I really want to thank you for taking the time. This has been a really, really awesome conversation. I haven't taken this many quotes and notes in, a, in a, quite a bit. Um, and on behalf of all of us, I want to thank all of you listeners for tuning in again. Um, if you like what you heard, give us a review, a rating on your podcast listening uh, platform of choice. Uh, we also have a very vibrant international Discord community. So hop on in. It doesn't matter where you're located. It doesn't matter what time zone you're in. Uh, come in and join the conversation. We have a lot of really good convos going on there. And lastly, but not least, the obligatory Patreon call out. We do have a Patreon. We are committed to always being free. But if you feel like chipping in and, and offsetting some hosting costs or production costs, maybe you'll get a surprise from me in the mail. Maybe you'll get a whole bunch of stickers that you can stick on your laptop and start great conversations with other coworkers. So once again, on behalf of Je uh, behalf of Jesus, uh, on behalf of Ben and Scott and myself, I want to thank you, Steve. On behalf of all of us, I want to thank you, listeners. And until next time, this is the Agile Uprising Podcast signing out. Thank you. It was a great pleasure. of being upsold at gyms my guy you're currently a base member for 90 dollars more i can upgrade you to our shred membership for 130 more you'll be a swole member and for just 300 more you'll reach sweat platinum at planet fitness you'll get energy without the upsell never pushy always free fitness training and equipment for every workout it's fitness that fits your budget join planet fitness for just one dollar down and ten dollars a month cancel anytime deal ends friday may 10th see home club for details